Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series from Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Kevin, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. And I'm Andrew Schuster, also a neuroscience graduate student. In this episode, we're going to talk about glia and their role in neuronal circuits, following data wherever it takes you, as well as a dream to swim with sperm whales. We're here today with Professor Dwight Burgles, a professor in the Solomon H. Snyder Department of Neuroscience at John Hopkins University. Thank you for talking with us today, Professor Burgles. Great. It's uh, great to be here. So for our first question, uh, we'd just like to hear a little bit about your background. So, for example, where did you grow up and how did you decide that you wanted to become a scientist? Sure. I, uh, I grew up in, in Iowa, in Ames, Iowa. I was there... Uh, because my father was a professor at the university, uh, he taught mechanical engineering and had a research lab. So I, you know, that's pretty much where I grew up. I was there until I graduated from, from high school. Uh, as far as the science part of it, I think, you know, I'm, I'm an intensely curious person and growing up in Iowa was a great place to be curious. There was a lot of outdoor time. My mom used to like, you know, send us out of the house and would call us back in for dinner with a cowbell. And so we spent a lot of time, you know, messing around in the forest. I still have 10 fingers, but, uh, you know, there are a few, a few mishaps along the way. I am slightly deaf in one ear because I had, a, you know, a homemade, you know, MAD blow up in my ear one time. And then uh, I remember I was cutting open golf balls, which was fine because a lot of the golf balls used to be, they have these rubber bands, you know, that were wrapped really tightly inside, but then they started filling them with these like, you know, compressed fluids. And, uh, th that's not good when you cut into one of those. So there were a few mishaps along the ways, but, but, uh, but I survived. And, uh, you know, as far as biology, you know, I was always fascinated with, with living things. And, uh, I think, you know, being exposed to uh, be, growing up in a scientific household, you know, certainly helped. But I was always drawn towards towards living things rather than the mechanical aspects of of heating and cooling, which is what my father's specialty was. What about neurobiology in particular? Neurobiology evolved from kind of a fascination with ion channels. I was uh, an undergraduate at Boston University and. At the time, I was really fascinated with marine biology. I thought I was going to be a little mini Jacques Cousteau kind of, you know. I think a lot of the people from my generation were fascinated with, you know, the lifestyle that he created, you know, for, through his videos and stuff. But uh, but so I was really drawn, and, and Boston University had a relationship with the Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole, which, you know, most people know is this really real center for uh, neuroscience, and it was through spending time down there that I got exposed to to neurobiology and learned how you know marine organisms were used as model systems to understand you know how action potentials are generated, how the how the synapse works, and things like that. So it was kind of absorbing that atmosphere, which which drew me towards neurobiology. So once you're in neurobiology, I would say as a, as a whole uh, throughout your career, a lot of your work is focused on neural circuits, but especially the role of non-neuronal cells, like glial cells, in neuronal circuits. So you've, you've looked at things like uh, the role of astrocytes in glutamate uptake of the synaptic cleft, the crosstalk between neurons and oligodendrocyte endocyte progenitor cells, astrocytes in synaptic plasticity, uh, neurovascular coupling, and now the role of, of supporting cells, uh, the kind of the glial cells of the cochlea in, in the auditory system. So what got you started working on glial cells? 
I guess it was um, – uh, so I did my, my PhD with uh, Stephen Smith, who is a former uh, faculty member at Stanford. Um, and, you know, he made a really astounding discovery uh, when he was at Yale that, that astrocytes – um, exhibit these very robust increases in calcium when they're stimulated with neurotransmitters. And this really changed, I think, fundamentally our idea about what glial cells are doing. The thought was that they were largely passive cells that you know, were providing metabolic support and structural support to the nervous system. But Stephen's early work and that of others showed that these cells express receptors for many neurotransmitters, and they also have a form of excitability, not um, related to changes in membrane potential or voltage, but related to changes in intracellular calcium. And so this is just such an exciting observation, and it suggested that there was a lot more that needed to be uh, discovered in, in, in glial cells in general. And I think, you know, personally, I've always been kind of drawn towards studying different things, you know, a little bit out of the mainstream. And, uh, you know, being in Stephen's environment where he's an extremely creative person and always kind of challenging dogma. Um, I think it was the sort of the combination of those two things which which drew me towards uh, studying glial cells, and in particular the, the interaction between glial cells and neurons, which is kind of what I've been focusing on in my career. Yeah, which it seems like in general the role of glial cells, especially in neuronal circuits, has exploded as of late. Yeah. Uh, there's been a lot more people working in glial cells than there used to be. But I, I imagine back when you first started, uh, especially like in your postdoc days, that the glial research might have not had uh, quite as much energy behind it as it does now. So what, what did, at that time, what did people really know about the role of, of any glial cell in neural circuits? Right. Way back, way back then. <laughs> way back then in the 1990s, I... I, you know, it was interesting. I mean, back then, I think Glee, Stephen's discovery about excitability was so dramatic because people were thinking about them in kind of this structural, you know, sponge-like um, idea that they're just providing support to neural circuits. And yeah, much of what we knew about the cells was more structural than functional. And, you know, the ability to then uh, identify these cells using uh, microscopy, the ability to generate transgenic lines of mice where you can label subsets of cells, force them to express fluorescent proteins, so then you can go in and, and record from dis discrete subsets of, of glial cells and things has just really increased our, our knowledge about the properties of the cells, their diversity, their changes with development, and the interactions that they have with surrounding neurons and, and other glial cells. So I think, you know, when I started it was really at the very beginning of looking at more functional properties of glial cells. And, um, and some of this work was done by Ben Barris at Stanford. Um, you know, he, uh, one, when he was a, a graduate student, postdoc, was working on glial cells and did some really beautiful studies of ion channels that were expressed uh, by glial cells when, um, when he was with uh, David Corey uh, at Harvard. So, I mean, this is... This is a very exciting time when people were start to starting to look at the electrical properties of cells and and had the ability to do this with targeted uh, recording techniques. So um, so it was a great you know that was kind of all emerging during that period, and I just kind of applied those approaches to study glia. Uh, yeah. Also, with respect to the role of astrocytes and, and other glial cells in neural circuits, 
I, I kind of wonder how much pushback you've gotten over the years and some of the stuff you've looked at, and especially when I look at some of the things you've studied. Uh, neurovascular coupling is a very contentious field. The role of astrocytes in synaptic plasticity, um, I feel, is a fairly uh, contentious field. So what has your experience been, and has that changed at all over, over uh, since you've been always It's always a battle. No. I, I'd say, you know, it, certainly at the very beginning, it wasn't, it wasn't so much of that like pushback. It was more just kind of like benign disinterest. I, I think, you know, many of us who were working on glial cells were striving for respect and attention and things like that. I, I didn't personally, yeah, I know it is. I mean, I didn't, personally, I didn't feel that too much because I was, I was not exclusively studying glia. I was studying neurons, but also looking at interactions with glia. So it, unfortunately it would often be the case where I would give like either the first talk at a meeting or the last talk at the meeting because they weren't sure where to put a talk about how glia influenced synaptic transmission or whatever, you know, it was sort of being out on the edge. And it was often a case where you're trying to get people's attention and trying to force them to think of other things beyond, uh, you know, what happens to calcium when it enters the nerve terminal. Um, so, so there was a bitter, a bit of that time where, uh, you know, you're just trying to get people to think about the synapse, for example, in a much um, a broader context, that it, it doesn't just have the presynaptic element and the postsynaptic element, but actually it's associated with in this, you know, an astrocyte, which is often very closely associated with the synapse and is really integral to the function of synapses. And so you can't understand how this thing works until you bring in that additional element. Speaking of, of synapses as well as, as capturing attention, in 2000, during your postdoc with Dr. Craig Jar, you, you made this pretty crazy, in my opinion, discovery that neurons synapse onto ligandendrite progenitor cells in the hippocampus. And it's since been shown to occur in both excitatory and inhibitory neurons and in different areas of the brain. So one, uh, how did you come up with that idea? Did you go in expecting to find neurons synapsing onto OPCs, or did you just patch onto an OPC and accidentally see something crazy? How did that come about? Right. So like a lot of things, it was it evolved over time, and it, there was a lot of serendipity involved. Actually, um, it it began when I was a graduate student in uh, Stevens' lab. Actually, I was spending a lot of time patching glial cells in, in hippocampal brain slices. And at that time, you remember, I mean, we didn't have transgenic mice where they were expressing GFP and so forth. So we were kind of going in blindly and uh, recording from cells. And I was recording from astrocyte, but occasionally I would hit one of these other cell types and I had no idea what the cell was. And, you know, it's interesting, I have slides where I filled these cells with markers, looked at them histologically, and, you know, still had no idea what they were. And I was uh, electrically stimulating axons at that time to look at the response of astrocytes to neuronal stimulation. And of course, I also elicited responses in these cells, and I saw some strange, you know, currents that look, looked synaptic-like. And, and so I kind, of, I kind of filed this away, and then when I was in Craig's lab, started to develop this a bit further. And, and you know, in Craig's lab, I was working more intensely on synaptic function and the role the, that astrocytes play in um, controlling n neurotransmitter uh, clearance from synapses. And, and it, at, that, at that moment, I, th I felt like I was really in a position to explore what these responses were in these other cell types. And um, yeah, so I, 
I, I started actually recording from those cell types in earnest and then filling them. And, and one of our one of our major goals during that time was to try to figure out what the heck these cells were. I mean, we had we had no idea. I mean, they had this strange um, morphology. They had strange current to voltage relationships. You know, the phenotype of the cells was very unusual. It didn't look like an astrocyte. Didn't look like a neuron. And um, and so I was I was filling the cells and then processing the tissue, staining them for many you know antibodies, which would label the cells. I mean, this went on for six months, a year, and then. Um, read a paper about OPCs expressing neurotransmitter receptors uh, for glutamate. And I thought, well, maybe there are these cells. And so I got an antibody and then started a collaboration with uh, Peter Samoji um, at Oxford, who's an amazing anatomist. And um, so I was filling cells and sending the tissue to him and he was reconstructing, uh, you know, sectioning the tissue. And, and then I remember he just you know, sent me a, uh, an image one day by email and it was, you know, it was like, this is the cell. It was a beautiful, co I mean, absolutely perfect co-localization between the cell I had filled and um, immunoreactivity for this antibody, which recognizes NG2, which is a, a marker for these cells. So that was just one of those eureka moments that, you know, we had all this physiology data about synapses and receptor expression, and now we knew what cell type this was. So that, yeah, it was something that evolved over, over many years. And, you know, there are, there were those moments where it's kind of like, how can I be so stupid thinking that, you know, this and that, and, you know, it's, it's amazing. It takes a long time to get to that Eureka moment. Uh, those Eureka moments always sound so fun. <laughs> it's so fun because there's so much work that leads up to it. I and mean, I think that that's the take home message is really, it's kind of, it's something that evolves over a long time and, and you're not unless you have all this other knowledge and experience, you're not prepared to recognize the significance of it or, or make that discovery. It seems like there's a lot of lack of direction before direction tends to like to reveal itself. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So what do these neuron OPC synapses actually do? That's, that's, uh, it's an area of intense investigation. There's sort of a cottage industry now. There's a number of labs all over the world working on this question. Um, we, we have some insights from work that's been done uh, in, in culture. So if you expose these, cell, these cells to uh, glutamate, you can, you can alter their uh, rate of proliferation and their rate of differentiation. So these cells are really fascinating in that they, they continue to divide throughout life and they, they account for about 10% of the cells uh, in the nervous system, in the brain, spinal cord in particular. And and these cells, you know, if you were to look at which cells are actively dividing in the adult CNS, these cells would account for the vast majority of cells that are actively dividing. So this is the largest pool of progenitors um, that continue to proliferate throughout life. We don't, we don't yet understand what the significance of that is or why they have to be maintained, why they continue to proliferate. But what we do know is that these cells are in the oligodendrocyte lineage. So, so these cells early in development give rise to mature oligodendrocytes, which of course form myelin sheaths. And they're capable of doing that in the adult nervous system too. If there's been injury to the CNS or if you've had you know, a, a demyelinating event, maybe caused by an autoimmune disorder, infection with a virus, something like that, these cells can be mobilized to then undergo differentiation and repair and replace those myelin sheaths. So that's clearly one major aspect of the cells. And, and what we've learned 
recently, so we've developed some approaches where we can selectively block um, glutamate receptor signaling in these progenitor cells. So just a little bit of backstory, this turns out to be a pretty difficult question to answer. It sounds simple, you discover the synapses, it should be very straightforward to figure out what they're doing. But the problem is, is that the cells express the same receptors that are found on neurons. So kind of pharmacological manipulations where you would block the receptors will block the activity of the neurons. So you're, you're blocking neural activity at the same time you're blocking the activity to these cells. And so interpreting those results is really difficult. It's, it's, I mean, we've had to develop like new tools, new approaches for manipulating glia. I think this is maybe one of the great benefits now of having so many more people involved in this field is that um, the resources that are available are expanding rapidly. But at the time we were starting, we had to develop our own transgenic lines. I mean, not only do we have to do the physiology, but we actually had to make the transgenics ourselves so that we could identify the cells and manipulate them because nobody else was working on this. And, um, and so we, so recently we've developed some approaches where, you know, we can disrupt amper receptor signaling just directly in these cells. And, and we see that it influences their, uh, their rate of proliferation and the probability uh, of their differentiation into oligodendrocytes. So they seem to be listening into neural activity to make decisions about whether these cells are are going to expand their number or whether they're going to make the decision to undergo this differentiation step and make, make new myelin. It's interesting because it seems to me at first pass that the rate of loss of myelin, unless you're having some sort of large demyelinating event, may not be quite as, as, as large as the rate of proliferation of these progenitor cells. It seems like they're proliferating quite a lot throughout the brain all the time, and you don't actually need new myelin that frequently. Right, right. So the, the proliferation of the cells, um, you know, it goes down dramatically with age. So there's, a, there's, there's many, many of these cells that are actively dividing during early life, during the period when new oligodendrocytes are being formed. And if you look at the rate of oligodendrocyte production, myelin production, it tracks the proliferation of cells pretty well. But even in the adult nervous system, you can see occasionally these cells dividing. If you aggregate that over the whole brain, it's actually a large number of cells. Um, and what we've seen um, recently, so what we've done is to develop mice where we can visualize these cells, where we ex force them to express GFP, and then we do in vivo imaging to look at the behavior of the cells. And we do this by putting in a cranial window in the animals. And then we can go back to the same region of the CNS day after day and monitor the movements of the cells, their differentiation, their proliferation. And, and what we find is that these cells exhibit very robust homeostasis. And what that means is that the cells are designed to maintain their number sort of at all costs. So when one of these cells undergoes differentiation, it will trigger proliferation of one of the neighboring cells to keep the number of cells constant. And the cells have a sense of how dense they can be in the tissue. So for example, it's a biological system, it's not perfect. Occasionally when one of these cells will undergo differentiation, two nearby cells will divide and that will produce you know, too many new cells. And so they also have a mechanism for cell death. If they become too numerous, too abundant, you'll actually see death of the cells. So you can see you know, death, 
proliferation, differentiation, all these kinds of things happening all the time. So it's a very dynamic population of cells. And I think this kind of explains why you continue to see proliferation of the cells in the adult nervous system, even when it seems that uh, you haven't had an injury to myelin or anything like that. And, and you're absolutely right. We've done a number of experiments now where we do time-lapse imaging of oligodendrocytes, the mature cells in the adult nervous system, and they, they seem, in the absence of any external perturbation, to be very, very stable. So, um, you know, they're, they're lasting almost the life of the organism. Kevin here has clearly devoted his life to the study of glial biology, but I haven't. So I have a couple of questions. I want to change gears a little bit. To, uh, well, I have a couple of questions about the model circuits you've studied. Um, as a doctoral and postdoctoral fellow, and as well as as an early investigator, a lot of your work focused on physiology of various synapses in the mammalian hippocampus and cerebellum, which are relatively well-studied, we call them model circuits, from which we've gleaned many general principles in neurophysiology. So I have kind of a two-part question. Number one, what drew you to these systems, first of all? And number two, how did you end up studying the development of auditory circuits and the role of glia in these developmental processes? Great questions. Um, I think that the reason I was I was moving towards um, studying, for example, the hippocampus and the cerebellum, well, one, it was just because people were studying those circuits. And, and so it was, it was relatively easy to learn how to make hippocampal slices, dissect out the hippocampus or the cerebellum. So there was that kind of just ease of doing experimentation. But also, I think it was, it was strategic in the sense that, you know, if we were trying to uncover the function of glial cells at synapses, well, it's better to have one variable and not two variables. You know, so if we were to study the role of glial cells in some undefined circuit where we don't know much about, we'd have to invest a lot of time to figure out the basic properties of this circuit and how it's modulated, what types of activity exhibits, what types of receptors are expressed, and all that kind of stuff. And, and so it would be best to go to a known circuit, which is um, well understood. And then we can, you know, we can use tricks that have been developed for manipulating that circuit to better understand the role that glial cells play in, in modifying its function. So that, I think that was what really was motivating that analysis of those two particular uh, regions of the CNS. But the danger, I think, is to, to then be, to overgeneralize the results, right? To take that and say, look, look, this is what they do, and we can understand it here. And I think it's very likely that the properties of, of glial cells, let's say in this case astrocytes in particular, which are you know very closely associated with synapses, are are quite heterogeneous. We're learning that now. That in different circuits, they express different types of receptors. They can be modulated in different ways, and um, and are likely playing you know different functions. I'm sure there's strong conservation of physiology and function among different brain regions, but there are likely to be not so subtle differences in how they interact with circuits that are that allow them to specialize themselves to these different brain regions. And that I think that's you know what we're learning now is more and more people get attracted to, say, the role of astrocytes in the basal ganglia or in the hypothalamus or, you know, these kinds of things. We're learning that, yeah, it's just not, not one size just kind of fits all for, for astrocytes. <clears throat> so that's super exciting. Um, in terms of the auditory work that, that's uh, been going on in my lab for a number of years now, it is one of those 
kind of serendipity stories. I mean, I was, um, I remember I was giving, uh, like a chalk talk to the first year graduate students. We often do this, you know, to the first years when they come in and we're trying to tell them a little bit about the work that's going on in our labs. And, and I was there with Elizabeth Glowatsky, who's a, a professor in otolaryngology here. And, uh, she was talking about how she has the ability to patch the, the bouton at the base of hair cells and, um, and record synaptic currents and things. And I was like, this is an amazing system. I mean, you have, you have essentially a synapse where you can record from the presynaptic terminal, which is the hair cell. You can record from the postsynaptic dendritic spine, which is the bouton right at the base of the hair cell. And then you can also record from these glial cells. And, and so I thought this would be a great system. It's also a ribbon synapse, which has been understudied in terms of its, you know, how, how glial cells deal with that amount of neurotransmitter release because, you know, these synapses are really specialized for constant release of neurotransmitters. So I thought, oh, this is a great system. You know, maybe we should do some pilot experiments and, and, and see if we can, um, set, you know, establish a collaboration. And so I remember we did it over like one Christmas break. She and I were both doing experiments and, um, and it was one of those experiences where I did, I, I made it, she, she obviously was very experienced in removing the cochlea from animals and you can you can create these great kind of whole mount preps where the hair cells and the supporting cells and everything is contained within the preparation um, in their normal relationships and and so you know we had these preps in the lab and so I started recording for from the supporting cells and I didn't even know what these cells were really you know just things that were nearby the hair cells started patching them and I remember it literally was the first recording and and it was like they were there was all this like spontaneous oscillations and current. You know, when uh, when I patched them and I was just like, you know, checking the amplifier to make sure there wasn't noise or somebody wasn't walking around or creating, you know, like someone's cell phone wasn't on or something weird like that. Just trying to figure out it was so unusual because, you know, if you record from astrocytes in brain slices, they're electrically very silent. So you don't you don't see that kind of activity. And I think it was really that contrast between the supporting cells in this preparation and then the supporting cells the astrocytes and brain slices, which I just really, um, you know, caught my interest. And, and so I, you know, began to be thinking about it a little bit more about like, you know, what, what is this activity? And, and, um, and it struck me that we, we had removed the cochlea from these animals before the onset of hearing. So rats and mice don't begin to hear until about two weeks after birth. And we were, you know, we were taking these uh, cochlea out from animals that were about P7. And it was known at that time that that there is spontaneous activity in the auditory system, very similar to, um, you know, what Carla Schatz had discovered in the visual system. And um, and so it struck me, I thought, you know, maybe, maybe we're just picking up a little bit of this activity. You know, by recording from the glial cells, we can see the spontaneous activity and maybe if we could understand what is generating that activity in the glial cells, we might understand the mechanisms responsible for generating spontaneous activity in the auditory system. So I wouldn't say that that all happened within a period of like a couple minutes, but it was, it was definitely over like a weekend that that idea kind of came out from those, those very initial uh, experiments. But it's interesting. It was a, it's one of those things where, there was all this spontaneous activity, which actually made it really problematic for the initial goal of those experiments, which was 
to try to determine the role of these cells in clearing glutamate from synapses because there was all this other background activity that we had to get rid of before we could even see the transporter currents and things like that, which, you know, which was the original goal of those, those experiments. Yeah, it was probably like, what is all this garbage background? How do we get yeah. rid of it? And then that turns out to be one of your major discoveries. Uh, so yeah. your work over the last 10 years um, hints at a lot of parallels between the developing mammalian auditory and visual systems. For example, as you mentioned, spontaneous activity beginning in the retina and traveling waves all the way up to the cortex probably helps to outline the visual system's spatial topography. Um, and your work in the last couple years has shown that spontaneous activity beginning in these supporting cells in the cochlea ends up exciting inner hair cells, which excite spiral ganglion neurons, and that this process also probably helps to wire up the auditory system. Um, so how well do you think the analogy here between the developing visual and auditory system systems extends. Um, so where, where, do you, where do you think these developmental concepts or processes might differ? And what, what might that say about the sensory systems themselves intrinsically? That's a, that's that's a broad a really, question. That's an, that's an intense question. I, the short answer is that we, we don't know. We don't know how many parallels there, there will be. We know a little bit uh, from studies in which the cochlea has been removed so that, you know, there have been a number of sort of ablation studies or studies of congenitally uh, deaf mice. And it seems clear that that activity is important for controlling the maturation of neurons in the auditory pathway. That is the types of ion channels that they express and their excitability, um, the properties of synapses. Um, it would be a little bit of a stretch to say that it it also controls the refinement of synapses, but I think that it, the evidence is reasonably good that, that some aspects of the tonotopic organization of the auditory system might be, uh, I wouldn't say controlled, but actually, you know, to a certain degree refined or initially es established in some way by this activity. Now, that's not to say that there aren't genetically pre-programmed events that are also involved in kind of establishing which cells form synapses and project to certain regions of the CNS. And even in the absence of any activity, you can see um, a, a broader tonotopic organization of auditory centers in the CNS. So there's clearly, as in the visual system, there are, there are these sort of genetic events, guidance cues and so forth that are controlling the sort of general topography of the system. But then I think the idea is that 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 organization, which which doesn't rely on function, is maybe not enough, and that you really need to make sure that the connections that you're making are are functional, and that you've connected up in a series all of the cells necessary to take input that's coming from the periphery all the way up to auditory cortex. And I think the beauty about the system that you know we've discovered in the cochlea is that it uses the entire pathway. It basically starts with the hair cells. So, you know, you're kind of, uh, at this time, there's, there's not sound evoked activity, but you can drive activity of hair cells as if it were being, being stimulated by sound. And so then, then you have the ability to sort of march through all these different synapses all the way up to the cortex. But, you know, it is, I think we're in a phase where 
it's um, it's easy to sort of speculate that, oh, yeah, this is establishing tonotopy and refinement of synapses and enough said. But I think that it's it is much too soon to make that generalization. And also, I think that there's a, going to be a lot of complexity in and answering that question is not as simple as just saying that it refines, but then, you know, how does it do this? What is the relationship between activity and expression of the, the genes which enable synapses to be established, to be uh, sort of solidified, um, other ones punished and removed, those kinds of things. I mean, those are central questions about how um, the nervous system is wired together, but also how it um, it has elements of plasticity in it that that are again recruited when you say have an injury to the cochlea and you have no input or aberrant input coming in uh, to this system. It does seem like sensory systems retain an enormous amount of plasticity even in the adult nervous system. This is all a very good lead up into your talk here at Stanford. In just a couple of days, we're going to be talking about the role of supporting cells in initiating this inner hair cell activity. Uh, in the cochlea. So could you give us a few more details uh, about that as a preview to your talk? Sure. So um, so like, I mean, uh, as I was kind of alluding to before, an, an essential part of synapses is having an accessory glial cell there. And, and that's because at these synapses, you have to have a way of removing neurotransmitter, but also physically isolating neighboring synapses from each other. Because you know, if you, if you didn't have these kind of intervening um, barriers to diffusion, you would have neurotransmitter released at one synapse, inf influencing receptors at another synapse, and you, it would be kind of a sewer effect where you would lose a lot of that specificity of signaling between cells. So this is, you know, in terms of a structure, you'd really need to have these components. And not surprisingly, in the cochlea, where you have these synapses between hair cells and spiral ganglion neurons, you also have these accessory glial cells. And they share many features in common with astrocytes in, in the CNS. So, so what we, we've been working on is trying, as I mentioned before, trying to un understand what drives this spontaneous activity. And, um, and it turns out it's, a, it's quite a complex mechanism. There are many steps involved, but ultimately it results in the depolarization of hair cells. And then hair cells will release neurotransmitter onto the spiral ganglion neurons, and you will generate bursts of action potentials that's then carried through the auditory system. And the, the mechanism that we discovered involves the spontaneous release of ATP by the supporting cells. And you can... You can visualize this in a number of ways. If you monitor calcium within the supporting cells, you can see transient increases in calcium within clusters of supporting cells in different tonotopic organizations uh, along, the, along the cochlea. But um, a former student, graduate student in my lab, uh, Nicholas Trich, discovered that you could actually visualize this activity of the supporting cells. And this is really another breakthrough discovery so it turns out that when these cells release ATP, it increases calcium within them, and that increase in calcium causes these cells to shrink. They, they lose water, and as a result of that, they crenate. And that crenation, if you're visualizing the cells, you know, causes a change in refractive index in the tissue, and you can actually see these little pockets of crenation of the cells. And so this was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. You know, this is amazing. I've never seen anything like this. And, and, um, and the reason that they do this is because 
cal when calcium goes up in the cells, it actually causes um, opening of a chloride channel in the membrane. And this, the cells are packed with a lot of chloride. So chloride goes out of the cells when these channels open. And when chloride goes out, it pulls water with it to sort of maintain the ionic strength. And so you have this huge increase in chloride conductance in the cells and movement of chloride. And so that, that causes a very large movement of water associated with it. So that so that, that's a big part of like why we were able to see this these little crenation events and why that was a breakthrough is because this showed us where and when ATP was being released in the tissue. So we didn't need any fancy calcium indicator. We didn't need any electrodes or anything. All we had to do was just you know, put the prep under a microscope and then look for changes kind of in the optical properties of it. And in every single preparation does this. You don't have to stimulate it, don't have to do anything to it. So it was just, it was a, it was a huge advance. And, and what we found was that we looked at where these events were occurring. They were occurring right next to the hair cell. And, you know, since ATP was triggering these events, we thought, you know, maybe ATP is not just activating the supporting cells, maybe it's also activating the hair cells. And, and so then we started to probe the spontaneous activity in the hair cells and the spontaneous activity in the spiral ganglion neurons. And we found that all three of these elements exhibited highly correlated activity. So at the same time you saw responses in the supporting cells, you saw depolarization and activation of the hair cells and also bursts of action potentials in the spiral ganglion neurons. So there's this, there's this periodic excitation of neurons in the auditory pathway, which appears to be driven elementally by spontaneous release of ATP by these supporting cells in the cochlea. So this concludes the main part of our interview, um, but it's also a tradition of NeuroTalk to end with three rapid fire questions. So question number one. If you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, what advice would you give yourself? <laughs> uh, I would say, you know, having the courage just to follow the data wherever it leads you. I, I think we, you know, particularly as graduate students, you can be very influenced by the ideas that are in vogue or, you know, that are that are being discussed in the, you know, the 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 most notable papers and the people in the field that you see these, you know, a few individuals tend to dominate, you know, the field with their ideas and results. I think you, you just have to have the discipline to just to follow the data wherever it takes you and, and just absolutely don't hesitate to, to throw out your, your pet hypothesis. So I think this is probably the most important thing that you can learn as a graduate student. And I, I think that, you know, I'd go back and say that, you know, you should just embrace that kind of attitude um, when you're just when you're just starting. Good, good. I've certainly had to throw out a couple uh, <laughs> pet hypothesis carcasses at this point, so it's uh, good advice for me to hear again. I think I've thrown out all of mine at this point. <laughs> Question number two: uh, What job or career would you do if you were not in science? Well, I was. Um... I minored in archaeology in, in uh, you know as an undergraduate, so I think I still am really fascinated with ancient cultures and things like that. So it's a little bit cheap because within that field, I'm I'm sort of drawn to the more scientific aspects of it, like remote sensing and things like that. But I think archaeology 
would be one. And if it wasn't, if it wasn't science, I think I would probably be maybe a mechanic of some sort. I, when I was in high school, I worked as a, a bike mechanic and I did that in college too. And I kind of, I love working with my hands. I have an old car and I, you know, I, I enjoy doing those kinds of things. So maybe I would, I would be a mechanic of some sort. Well, as an electrophysiologist, yeah. you're not too far <laughs> off. It's funny, my my chairman, my former chairman, Saul Snyder, he used to, he used to call me an electrician. You're an electrician, right? <laughs> so it, was just, it was just so funny. Okay, our last question. Uh, you said a little bit earlier that you grew up very interested in marine biology. So if you had the chance to go scuba diving, what is the aquatic creature you would most want to see? Hmm want to see or have seen the dream um, the dream organism to run across wow i would love i think i would love to um see like a sperm whale i remember watching this documentary where uh there was there these people were on a sailing vessel and they were in the mid middle of the indian ocean and i mean just in the middle of nowhere and there was a there was a bunch of sperm whales and they just they just jumped in the water you know like it's just there's like absolutely nothing around jump in the water with these these immense creatures. So that was just so striking. I, I think something like that would be an amazing experience. I would love to do that. I, I'd love to um, watch like octopus feed at night. I mean, this is something I have seen this once and it, you know, it, it was just so awesome because they're, they are incredibly curious creatures. You know, they're always digging around in holes and when they feed, they're looking for the little crevices and the animals that are hiding in these little holes. And I, I was just thinking that, you know, I want to see what's in that hole too. And I, you know, so it's just, it's just awesome to watch how they approach, um, you know, hunting and things. It's just, you know, you could just do it forever. So, so th those are, those are maybe two things that I, that I would really love to see more of. The, oc the octopus after the scientist is the second most curious creature on earth. There you go. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Hey, it was great talking with you guys. Thanks a lot. And I guess we'll see you uh, in just a couple days. Look forward to it. You bet. Me too. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by Ada Yi, Luis Guillaume, Eddie Albron, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, Jordan Sorkin, John Peters, Kevin Guttenplan, and myself, Andrew Schuster. Adam Fuschel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neurite-west.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. You can also follow Neurite West on Twitter using our Twitter handle, at Stanford Neuro. This is Neurotalk. I'm Kevin Guttenplan.